You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Is meant to look like. So if we want our church to look like a biblical church, if we want our values to mirror God's values for his household, we must pay close attention to what this book says about the church. Our church doesn't belong to us to mold and to shape the ways that we want to. It belongs to God. And that means we need to receive our instructions from God himself. Now we saw last Sunday that the Apostle Paul began this letter by focusing on the importance of sound doctrine. Nothing for Paul was more pressing and more urgent than this, than a clear, devoted commitment to sound doctrine, which the flip side of the coin is a, pr- a preparation and a readiness to rebuke, rebuke false teaching. And this is so urgent for Paul because you cannot have a healthy church if you don't have healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine that culminates in a healthy view of the gospel. What we believe and what we teach is fundamental because it will shape who we become. Healthy churches must have healthy doctrine if we are to see a healthy church culture. But now that Paul has addressed the urgent needs in the Ephesian church, which is the church that Timothy, young Timothy was pastoring, where does he go next? What is the next building block in this roadmap that God has painted for us about how to build a healthy church? Well, the answer might surprise you. Paul's next priority for a healthy church is prayer. It's prayer. Prayer is essential, not only because of what it accomplishes, but what it reveals. Charles Spurgeon, that famous 19th century Baptist preacher, called prayer the true gauge of spiritual health. Prayer is one of the most important ways for us to measure how mature we are as a church. Healthy churches will pray together. And that is because prayer reveals how much we trust God. You can't be spiritually mature if you don't trust God. And, if you, and, and you don't trust God if you don't pray. Now, reformed churches, historically speaking, in general, we don't have a great reputation when it comes to prayer. Because we take the doctrine of God's sovereignty And we say, God is in control of everything, and so we just have to sit back and see him work. Let's just wait and see what God does. It's not for us to do anything or to to will anything to be done. God is sovereign, and he will do what he wants. But that, as many of us know, is a gross misapplication of that glorious doctrine. Prayer has always been a central part of Reformed theology, Perhaps you've heard this before, but John Calvin called prayer the chief exercise of faith. There are many ways in which we express our faith, but chief among them is through prayer. Prayer distinguishes between those who trust God and those who don't. And that's why, as we read in our scripture reading from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, one of the distinguishing marks between the good kings and the bad kings in the Old Testament was whether they prayed. 
When, when Jehoshaphat was facing the great hordes from Ammon and Moab, he, he assembled all of Judah together and they prayed. And as they sought the Lord's help, the Lord delivered them by his mighty hand. The bad kings, on the other hand, when they faced problems, they just went ahead, trusting in their own wisdom, and they suffered the consequences for it. My friends, that is why we must pray. Prayer is both an expression of faith and a catalyst for faith. It reveals the faith that we have, and it gives us the faith that we lack, so that the more we pray, the more mature our church will become. So with that said, let's read our text today. We'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Like last Sunday, my sermon today is gonna be a synthesis of of a number of sermons that I preached last year. This is a sermon series that we began at our old location that we put on pause after we moved here to our new location. Uh, This is only two sermons into one rather than four like last Sunday. The title of this sermon is The Transforming Power of Prayer. The Transforming Power of Prayer. We're gonna address our text today in two points. First, how prayer transforms others and how prayer transforms us. First, how prayer transforms others. Now notice how Paul opens verse one. He he emphasizes the importance of prayer. He says, first of all, what I'm about to say to you is of first importance. Well, what, what, he addressed in chapter one was the urgent need and is, is a high priority need, that is the importance of sound doctrine culminating in a sound understanding of the gospel. But now that he's addressed the urgent needs, Paul is returning to the regularly scheduled programming of how to build a healthy church. And he says, first of all, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Prayer is of first importance. It is an urgent need in the church. But 
what kind of prayer is he urging? Is he, is he urging just private prayer in your prayer closet? Is he urging family prayer in the home? Well, when we consider the context that Paul is writing to Timothy about how to put the church in order, we know that he's not talking primarily about private prayer. He's talking primarily about corporate prayer, about the saints gathered together in the household of God, praying together. He's saying, listen, Timothy, the first thing I want you to know about building a healthy church, the first thing I want you to know about how believers are to relate to one another in the household of God is that they must be committed to prayer. In other words, he's talking about prayer meetings. He's talking about prayer meetings, when the church gathers to pray together. That is what he says is of first importance in the life of the church. Well, who are we to pray for? Paul says in verse one, we are to pray for all people, all people. I don't know about you, but when I pray with my kids, I love to pray for them. I love to pray for our church, but I don't love to pray for all people. Paul's telling us in verse one that we're not just meant to pray for ourselves or for fellow believers, we're to pray for all people. No one should be outside the scope of our prayers. Not our neighbors on our streets, not our coworkers at work, not even the political powers that rule over society. And Paul makes that clear in verse two. He says we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. We are to pray for the government that God has ordained for this time and for this place. And that means for 21st century Canadians like us. That, that means that we are to pray for our prime minister and our MPs. We are to pray for our premier and our MPPs. We are to pray for our mayor and our city council. We are to pray for our judges, both provincial and federal. We are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. But why? Verse two continues, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, let's not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying we pray that the government would leave us alone so that we could do our own thing, okay? That's not what he is urging us to pray for. He's urging us to pray that our government would give us the freedom to live our Christian lives in such a way that many would be saved. Paul's motivation here for urging prayer is evangelism. It's a heart for the lost, And we see that by reading verses three and four. Right after Paul urges us to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, he writes, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. My friends, this is the real reason why we want a peaceful and quiet life. This is the main reason why we pray to those who are in high positions that they would let us live a peaceful and quiet life. We want it's so that our gospel witness would not be compromised by political interference. We want this so that the ministry of our church wouldn't be distracted by legal controversies. We want it so that the lost can freely hear the gospel and attend local churches and see the gospel on display. We pray for our government because we want people to be saved. But that won't happen if the church doesn't exist if we are not left to live a peaceful and quiet life. And so we pray. We pray that the Lord would grant us favor in the eyes of the state. 
You don't need me to tell you that this is a pressing need. In the middle of this pandemic, because the government can and has exerted its power to compromise our ability to live a peaceful and quiet life. It's compromised our ability to testify to the saving power of the gospel. The question for us is, how have we responded to what the government has done in this time? Have we responded by complaining? Or have we responded by praying? A peaceful and quiet life won't come from complaining. It will only come from praying. And so we pray. We must pray in these times, in the middle of this pandemic, as the government wrestles with difficult health-related decisions. You must pray for them. Let's give thanks to them, for them, because they are a gift from God functioning within their jurisdiction. I believe, honestly, if you would ask me, how has the government acquitted itself in this crisis? I believe it's largely done what has been right, what has been healthy, and what has been helpful for us. They haven't always made all the best decisions, but no one in that position would. So rather than complain, rather than gripe about what liberties we have lost, let us pray for all those who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life as a church. Now that's one of the main things that God wants us to pray together. It's not the only thing he wants us to pray. To understand all that God wants us to pray, we need to look at the church's prayer book, which is the Psalms. The Psalms teach us all that we are to pray and how we are to pray it, both by ourselves and together. But as we pray, we must not forget to pray for all people, including those that we may find it most difficult to remember to pray for, which is the government. Now, verse four reminds us that we can pray this with confidence because God himself desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray for the preservation of our witness because God wants our witness to go forth with saving effect. Now we know that, that God doesn't save everyone, okay? We, we know that. We know that the Bible teaches that some are objects of his mercy and some are objects of his wrath. But that doesn't change this wonderful reality that God's heart, God's heart, what flows out of the, the essence of who God is, is compassion. God's heart is full of mercy. God is just, but the Bible does not say that God is Justice, it says God is love. God is who he is at all times and in every way. And yet there are some qualities that are closer to the heart of God than others. And chief among them is love. Lamentations 3 verse 33 says, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Affliction does not come from his heart. Love does, rest for weary souls does, satisfaction in him does. Jesus himself said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. In his wonderful book Dane, uh, called Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes that this is the only time in any of the gospels that Jesus describes his heart. He is gentle and lowly in heart. 
And so when we pray for the government, we pray that people will be saved. And we pray that with confidence because the heart of God is one of compassion and love towards lost sinners. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that truth is set out in verse five. He says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the gospel message. There is one God, one God who is over all and in all. He created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word. He is the almighty, eternal God. And this God is the God who was, who is, and who will be. This God is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And there is one mediator, one God, one mediator between God and men. Only one can go between a holy God and sinful man. That is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, came into the world as a man so that he could represent us as the one mediator who could bring us before God. The gospel reveals that this mediator, Jesus Christ, he didn't just speak on our behalf. He didn't just advocate for us with his words. He, he died on our behalf. He gave himself as a ransom for all. He paid the price for our redemption. He gave us life by his death. He satisfied the wrath of God against us on the cross so that we could go free. My friends, that is why we pray for all people. We pray that they would come to a knowledge of this truth, this truth that there is only one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now Paul says in verse seven that this, this truth, this truth is what he lived for. He lived to proclaim this message, having been appointed by God himself as a preacher and an apostle to go to the Gentiles. And we read that word, Gentiles, we should picture all the nations, all the nations of the world. God sent Paul as an appointed preacher and apostle to go to the nations, to lead them in faith and to teach them in truth. Now, not all of us will have that same call to go and preach the word. We all speak the word. We all share the word. Not all of us preach the word. But we should all have the same passion, the same passion to see the gospel go out to all the nations. And so we pray. We pray that the Lord would do this for the salvation of sinners and for the glory of his name. That's how prayer transforms others. It leads them to the one God through the one mediator named Jesus Christ. But how does prayer transform us? How does it work in the life of a believer? And that leads to our second point. Now we see that in verses eight to 10, Paul addresses the men and then the women in the church. And he gives the men and the women each something to do and something not to do. To the men, he says, essentially, pray, don't quarrel. And to the women, he says, be committed to good works and not to good looks. Now on the surface, they seem to be very different instructions. But when you 
meditate on these verses, you see that the heart of them is really the same. At the heart of both his address to men and women is the sinful tendency to want to outdo other people. It's for men, they want to outdo one another by the force of their arguments. And for women, they want to outdo one another by the beauty of their appearance. The the root of both is pride. It's wanting to present yourself as being better than others. It's the desire to receive glory from other people and to be respected as being superior. This may find different expressions in men and women, but the sinful root is the same. It's pride. And that is why we can also see women struggle with anger. That's why we can see men struggle with vanity. The sinful root can produce the same sinful fruit in both men and women. But in general, in general, what we see is men express their pride through anger and quarreling. And women express their pride through vanity. Now, what does this have to do with prayer? Well, to begin with, verse eight says that anger and prayer They can't go together. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. There is a direct correlation between the quality of our relationship with God and the quality of our relationships with others. If one goes downhill, the other does as well. There is no such thing as a man who is prone to anger and who is devoted to prayer. You're not gonna see it. It's like a mythical unicorn. It doesn't exist because anger, it comes from pride and prayer comes from humility. They they are opposed to one another. They come from different dispositions. Anger comes from depending on yourself and wanting to, to bring glory to your own name. Prayer comes from depending on God and wanting to bring glory to him. Angry people are more aware of the sins of other people. Prayerful people are more aware of their own sins. That is why angry people don't pray. They're not humble. They're trusting in themselves rather than the God who gave them life and salvation. They're not broken and contrite. They are stiff-necked, upright, and stubborn. They're fixated on the failings of others rather than their sinfulness before God. Listen, the only way to become a prayerful person is to be committed to humble holiness. John Calvin wrote, no heart will ever rise to genuine prayer that does not at the same time long for holiness. My brothers, God wants us to be men of prayer. If there's one thing that our heavenly father wants his sons to be known for, it's not how much money they make, it's not what kind of jobs they have, it's whether they can lift up holy hands in prayer without anger, quarreling. Brothers, we must put aside our offenses if they exist between us. We must forgive those who wrong us. We must be slow to anger quick to listen, slow to speak. We must be characterized and known for being peacemakers. You remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
We must be known for bringing people together rather than tearing people apart. That is God's desire for his sons. But when are we to pray and where? What what is it meant to look like practically? Well, verse eight says, I desire then that in every place, in every place, the men should pray. Our heavenly father wants our communion with him to be so deep and so rich that there is never a place where we feel that we cannot approach God in prayer, in the solitude of our homes, in the gatherings of the local church, in the hustle and bustle of day-to-day life. Prayer is meant to saturate our lives. Now, you don't need me to tell you that there is a lot of confusion today about what it means to be a man. What is the difference between masculinity and femininity? Well, verse eight tells us that one of the defining characteristics of the godly man should be prayer. It isn't how well you can debate theology. It isn't how many pounds you can lift at the gym. It's not how much money you can make. Prayer is the mark of the godly man. That is what our heavenly father is looking for. Now, what does our text say next about the relationship between prayer and vanity? At first glance, you look at verses nine and 10, it seems like Paul isn't talking about prayer anymore. But if we look just a little deeper, we'll see that verses nine and 10 are still about prayer. They're not just about prayer, but they certainly include prayer. We see that in verse nine when Paul uses the word likewise. Likewise, also women. Okay, so he's saying what I'm about to say to women is related to what I just said to men. And that was about prayer. But we also see it at the end of verse 10 when he calls women to be devoted to good works, to adorn the beauty of good works. Now, good works includes many things. Paul gives us some examples later on in 1 Timothy in chapter five. You remember Paul is addressing the widows in the church and which women would qualify to receive financial support from the church. He says that they are to have a reputation for good works. And here's his catalog. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Now that's clearly not an exhaustive list of good works because there's this basket clause at the end, devoted herself to every good work. But it gives us an idea of what the Bible means when it uses this phrase, good works. Good works is simply defined as doing good for the good of others. You'll notice in that list, all those good works are done in relation to another person. You're doing something for someone else. And so if doing good works is doing what is good for the good of others, then surely that includes praying, praying for other people. You're doing what is good for the good of another person. And I think that's why Paul says in chapter two, verse three, he says that this is good. This is good. Prayer is good. It is a good work done for the good of others. And so we see, and we understand why vain people do not pray. They are too absorbed in how good they look to consider the good of others. They're more concerned with looking good than doing good when it should be the other way around. And Paul wants to address that in verse nine. He wants the vain women in the church to become less vain by dressing modestly. He says, likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now we need to understand Paul's not against 
braids or jewelry or nice clothes per se. Okay, he's against what all those things communicate when they are worn together. And they communicate an obsession with looking good. This description in verse nine actually mirrors how what you could call the pop culture icons of first century Rome used to dress. Their hair was, was elaborately braided and piled up on top of their heads and they were decorated with gems and gold and pearls. It, it was a status symbol. As women walked around looking like this, they were communicating to those around them that they were rich, they were beautiful, and therefore superior. So when Paul says that Christian women shouldn't dress like this, he's, he's saying don't send those around you the same message. Don't, don't communicate to them that your value is tied up in how you look or that your identity depends on your beauty. Instead, dress in what is respectable, modest, with self-control in order to show the world that you have found your value, your identity in Christ Jesus. Don't dress to impress dress to honor the Lord. Don't just wear what you can, wear what displays self-control so that people can see that your identity is not wrapped up in what the world thinks about you, but in what God thinks about you. And when you do, when, when the vanity starts burning away from your heart, you'll discover the freedom and the joy of doing good for the good of other people. You'll become more focused on doing good than looking good. You'll adorn yourself with good works done for the glory of God. And that is true beauty. True beauty is found in the day-to-day grind of raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. True beauty is shown in showing hospitality to strangers. True beauty is found in washing the feet of the saints as you humble yourself to do the simplest, most menial tasks. True beauty is found in caring for those who are afflicted, who are burdened by many trials and sorrows. True beauty is found in praying for other people. That kind of beauty is far greater than any beauty that can come from your biology or by what you wear or by what jewelry you use to adorn yourself. That that beauty is gonna fade with time None of it will last, but, but this beauty, this beauty that adorns good works is imperishable. It will last forever. You may not see it now, but the day is coming when you will realize that how you served others was far more important than how you looked while you were doing it. In God's eternal economy, in the new heavens and the new earth, Good works will outshine good looks every single day. My friends, this is the transforming power of prayer. It takes angry men and it makes them gentle. It takes vain women and makes them servants. It takes proud people and makes them humble because those who pray know that they cannot trust in themselves and they do not live for their own glory. They live for the one who died for them on the cross. They go through this life with the singular goal of making much of their savior. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And they do that every time when they pray. And so do you want to grow in prayer? Do you want to grow into this defining characteristic of godliness? 
Well, perhaps you want to, but you're not sure where you stand with God. You don't pray because you're too covered with shame to approach his throne. And you're afraid that he will reject you and that he won't hear your prayers. My, my friend, if that's you, don't be afraid. Because when you approach God, you do not do so pleading your own merits, pleading the righteousness of your own life. You go in the presence of God pleading the righteousness of Christ. You approach him through the blood of Jesus. Jesus will be your mediator. None of us can approach God by our own merits, but all of us can approach God by the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He went to the cross so that we could go into God's throne room of grace with absolute confidence that our sins are washed away. And so come to him, trust in him, plead his merits, receive his grace, be covered with the cloak of his righteousness that you might begin to thrive in prayer. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we all must admit that we need to grow in prayer. I've yet to meet someone who says, I pray too much. And if you would meet someone like that, you'd say, you probably don't pray nearly enough. All of us need to grow in prayer because all of us trust more in ourselves than in God. That is the sinful tendency of our hearts. We, we are bent inwards to trust in ourselves, to depend on ourselves, to find solutions for our own problems. And that is my experience every single day. As I reflect at the end of the day, as I journal, I often think I did not pray nearly enough because I was trusting in myself. But I can tell you that the best way to grow in prayer is to pray with other people. Our prayer meetings, just speaking personally, have done more for my prayer life than all the books I've read, all the resolutions I've made, all the willpower I've mustered. We are meant to pray together. And when we pray together, God moves mightily, just as he did in the time of Jehoshaphat. As all Judah from every town and city gathered together, God spoke, he answered, and he delivered them. We are meant to assemble, to seek help from the Lord together. And when we do, the Lord will provide the help. You know, people often ask me how they can serve in the church. And I love that question. I love it when people approach me and say, I'm, I'm ready, I'm willing to serve. Just let me know what I can do. I wanna help. And what they're expecting is they're expecting me to plug them into a ministry or a program, to, to be a gear in the greater machine that we might call the church. But I can tell you what, what I often, what I most often tell these people is I tell them to do two things. I tell them one, build relationships with people. Just build relationships, invite people into your home. Accept invitations from other people to have you in their home. Connect with people after the service, build relationships. But the other thing I say to them is, you, I want you to pray. I want you to pray with us. I want you to pray for us. You wanna serve? Come to our prayer meetings. Because there is more done in that room when we're praying together than hours and hours of ministries and programs. Prayer is one of the best ways you can serve the church. Prayer is one of the best ways you can support your pastors. Because your pastors cannot do anything without the prayers of their people. 
Charles Spurgeon, again, he says, we cannot all argue, and that means speak with persuasion, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. And so will you pray with us? Will you pray to God in the presence of God's people? Let me give you some counsel. Don't wait till you feel like it. It's not gonna happen. If you, if you feel convicted, or if you feel a desire, a growing desire to grow in this area of prayer, to abide by this urgent call, first of all, pray. Then put prayer into your calendar. Put it into your schedule. And commit yourself to it. I know many people who have told me over the years that as prayer meeting was approaching, their flesh, their heart was raging against stepping out that door and driving to the church. But when they came and when they prayed, they had zero regrets. They were overjoyed to have had that experience of praying with God's people. I believe that if our church commits ourselves to prayer, God will graciously do a work to transform us and transform others so that many would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this indescribable gift to address the God of eternity with words. We pray for help that we would not take this privilege for granted but that we would grow and become known as a church that prays together. And we pray that as we do, that you would be pleased to do a mighty work among us and through us, that many would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.